0: Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Write On Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lumumba, and Write On Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Today I'm talking to Casey Sepp. Hi, Casey.
1: Hi, Ebony. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for being here, literally being here in Mississippi. And you're not, you're not from here. You're from Maryland. She's got this amazing new novel coming out in May. Came, yeah. out,
1: just came out Tuesday. Oh,
0: today? It's May now. It's out in the world. Yeah. I don't know when you guys are listening to this, but it's now May, and this is out in the world. Furious Hours. And so what Casey has done is put together a book filled with gnarly facts and really intense realities about a lot of different people but mostly harper lee who we all know from to kill a mockingbird but i'm interested in how we get to know her differently in this work and then of course i'm interested in knowing more about you casey so let's just start with like origin story of you you're not from
1: mississippi where are you from Uh, i was born and raised on the eastern shore of maryland and i live one county over from where My parents raised us, and so I'm not from Mississippi and I'm not from Alabama, but I feel like both with this story, which is set around Lake Martin and a lot of small towns in Coosa and Tallapoosa County, and even with, you know, Mockingbird, the story of Maycomb, which was based Mm -hmm. on where Harper Lee was born and raised in Monroeville, you know, I'm not from the South, but I feel like a certain kinship to those small southern towns because of where I grew up. And it's part of the reason I loved Mockingbird as a kid is, you know, that rural childhood felt pretty familiar to me.
0: Nice. So kind of what you're telling us is that you were drawn to the region because you saw similarities to your own upbringing, and then you've got this sort of affinity for Harper Lee. Talk to me about... What I mean, we all read To Kill a Mockingbird probably Mm -hmm. in what the sixth or seventh Mm -hmm. grade. And I gotta say, I wasn't I wasn't encouraged to go further with who Mm. Harper Lee was, but what pushed you to write beyond just kind of what she put on the page into her reality and what she was producing?
1: Sure. Well, it's interesting that you didn't take to To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, it is one of these books that millions of people are assigned, you know, in Mm -hmm. in middle school. And they they read it in this collective experience of childhood. But um, a lot of folks return to it as adults and read it with their children. And for some of them, it's their first experience of, you know, a courtroom drama. Or for a lot of white folks who are privileged Mm -hmm. never to have lived through it, they they feel like they get to know racism for the first time. Um, So it certainly had an effect when it came out in 1960. But I imagine, you know, you're of a generation where there are other books we read as children to kind of experience those things and process them. And um, for me as a kid, though, I I think, again, it was not the kind of famous courtroom scene that appealed to me. It was Mm -hmm. really this interesting triad of childhood, you know, a little girl named Scout a tomboy and I yeah. was a tomboy and her brother Jim and this friend of theirs, Dill, who comes to visit for the summer. So I was in it for those childhood scenes. And again, it felt like the small town life. I was living with two sisters and we got yeah. into adventures and, you know, we paraded around town and looked for wild things in the woods and made mm-hmm. a drama out mm-hmm. of anybody we didn't know and, you know, followed <laughs> other people's, Scandalized people's exactly, names. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that that was what drew me to it and I think that like a lot of people who'd love that novel in 2015 when *Ghost* at a Watchman was announced mm-hmm. I was shocked because the one thing we all knew about Harper Lee yeah. was she would never go and publish another book mm-hmm. and then she up and announced she was publishing another book and I mean people were floored exactly and, and to it. It. so it was interesting to me I went down to Monroeville for the New Yorker to report on that announcement mm-hmm. and while I was down there you know the world was consumed by that manuscript she'd written in 1958 I- but while I was there I learned about this other project she had undertaken in the 70s Mm. in the prime of her life. And it was interesting to me for a lot of reasons, but chiefly because it was nonfiction. Mm -hmm. So it was a real life story that she sunk her teeth into and tried to turn into a book. And the truth is the original crime story, which I'm sure we're going to talk about is interesting enough. You know, it would have been interesting even if she'd never taken an interest. But being she had and being she had such interesting ideas about true crime and about how we should talk about violence and how Mm -hmm. courtroom drama should be reported and, you know, how we should get into characters like, you know, supposedly good lawyers and supposedly bad Mm -hmm. ministers. Um, That was all interesting to me and and I wanted to know more about her life and in some ways, you know, it was just a mystery I wanted to solve. Whatever happened to this other book that Harper Lee had tried to write? Um, So you were solving a
0: a mystery about her book yeah, on a mystery.
1: absolutely. I think that's that's kind of what hooked me. And, you know, I studied English in college and yeah, yeah. I love to read. Kindred spirit. Here. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So I, I just felt like, you know, it was ultimately this was this was partly going to be a book about how writers work and how they choose their stories and what makes it hard or easy for them to write and so that felt like familiar territory to me Even sure. though it was down in Alabama.
0: Yeah, even though it was down in Alabama and even though we're over in Mississippi We still say down in
1: Alabama. <laughs> well, I gather I, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a rivalry that's palpable. It's, a, it's
0: almost a sibling rivalry yeah, like, We're yeah. obviously the same people, but you yeah, know, we just gotta push back against that
1: so you
0: know, it seems as if with the work that you've been doing specifically with this, um, piece that you find some personal connection and then it kind of, um, flows from that or grows from that. So I know that you've got a background in theology, which I think is remarkably interesting. And you're writing this book about Harper Lee's sort of interest in this bad mm-hmm. minister, right?
1: Yes. Uh, Willie,
0: Willie Maxwell. Who I, you know, I feel like I knew a couple of Willie
1: Maxwells. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So you, you brought your own personal experience oh, to the book. Oh, for and, sure. But this, yeah. this
0: concept of bad ministers, which, you know, we, we see that all the time, but it's always shocking.
1: Yeah. and that's Every kinda, time we're shocked. You're, you're absolutely right. And it is one of the tensions of the book, because on the one hand the reverend's ordination is part of what protected him initially from Mm -hmm. scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And it it was one of the reasons people found it so hard to believe that he could have been involved in the murder of one of his wives. But then, you know, wife two turns up dead under similarly suspicious circumstances. And right, it turns from a story about a man of the cloth who's maybe Mm -hmm. been framed or just suffered a loss like Job into a story that is also familiar to us, which is the hypocritical minister. So somebody whose sermons don't match up to his life. And that's everything from ill legitimate children to debts around town and
0: all of the skeletons.
1: Right. Exactly. And, and I think that, you know, for me, I did study theology, but I, I grew up in the Lutheran church. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was always interesting to think about people you knew in the sanctuary and how they conducted themselves in the world. And yeah. we're all hypocrites to some extent. Sure. You know, we're not as generous as Jesus like called we're us to honest. be. And, yeah. Right. You know, then, and that's that's just human anthropology. But of course, I don't mean to put most of us on par with the allegations against the Reverend. And that's where it becomes, to <laughs> your point, most a scandal. Of us don't, you know. Kill yeah. family
0: members for insurance money. Right, or as even, tempting as that might be. Oh god.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you said it, not me. But um, yes, I should just say though, you know the 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 Reverend before. This murder business um, was just renowned in a way rural preachers can be. You know, mm-hmm. people flocked to hear his sermons, and he was exceptionally erudite and and just mm-hmm. a gifted public speaker. And it was part of why this story was such a scandal in town because again, you had someone who was well known for his suits and for his elegant way of talking yeah. and his eloquent speech. And again, that 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 created that community totally right?
0: out of its ruralness, totally. out of its sort of the way that people think about small towns in Alabama and Mississippi is backwards, is, you know, not progressive Right. Willie Maxwell was the antithesis of that.
1: Absolutely. You know, he is someone who truly rose beyond his circumstances. Mm-hmm. And for my mind, you know, I knew this was a sensational story, but I hope that folks sit with the Reverend's childhood because, of course, everybody has a story before they're accused of crime. Absolutely. And in his case, you know, he had a very circumscribed life. His father was a sharecropper. Mm-hmm. His mother mm-hmm. was a housekeeper. He had limited opportunities compared right. to someone like Harper Lee. And, you know, he was born into what was quickly, you know, ca- solidifying as the Jim Crow South. Mm-hmm. So here was a man who was, you know, registered for the draft and sent, but could not have the same kind of army career his lawyer would ultimately have. You know, he yeah. was never eligible for the JAG Corps. The government was never going to send him to law school. Absolutely. And he comes home, you know, despite having this eloquence, despite being called to the ministry, you know, what does he go and do? He has to go to work at a textile mill. And mm-hmm. what does he have to do? He works at a rock quarry mm-hmm. and he works pulp wooding. You know, he was never going to yeah. own, he was sort never... Sort of inheritable trauma. Exactly. That, yeah. Besides his condition, absolutely, and and again, you know, I think that some people when they talk about financial crime, we're we're primed to talk about white-collar criminals as entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. And whatever else you could say about the Reverend Maxwell, he was entrepreneurial. Yeah. He, he found a loophole in a system and Which was criminal in it.
0: itself for a black man in that space in that time.
1: Exactly. Just um, to
0: want to thrive to want in business. Money. Exactly.
1: Yeah. To want money, to want opportunity. And I think that, again, you know, that's one aspect of this story. It's been talked about a lot in this part of Alabama, but I hope even for people, maybe they lived through it or they heard mm-hmm. about the Reverend, I hope they sit and think about the kind of larger forces operating on his life, because we're trained to do that with someone like Harper Lee. We think about what it was like for women Mm -hmm. before, um, you know, feminism took hold and how someone like that could go to college and start a literary career. Right. But I, I hope that they sit again with someone like the Reverend Maxwell and think about what it was like to be so bright and to have such ambitions, but not know how to pursue them in the world.
0: That is so fascinating, and I think it 's a it's a wonderful entry point to this work, not to go in looking for the sort of salacious trial and the you know alleged crimes, but thinking about how society creates uh, these circumstances and how we all have sort of a chapter that um, may be looked upon as shameful, that we might be ashamed of, but right it's and the, the survival
1: tactics sure. that
0: are not always sanctioned you know by law perhaps. right
1: and i was especially mindful of that you know again this is a community where the reverend has descendants. The lawyer has descendants. Yeah. You know, these are people who still live and breathe in these spaces. And obviously, this is a story that was experienced very differently by very different people. And nowhere is that more pronounced than in the trial of the vigilante, who, you know, mm-hmm. some people thought was a hero. So the reverend was gunned down at the funeral yeah. of his last right. alleged victim. And, you know, some people just wanted to have a parade for the man who shot him. But, of course, the reverend had children. He had mm-hmm. siblings. You know, there were and people. And a whole community of parishioners. Right. And a who whole still community of needed parishioners. Him as a figure your head to believe Believe, in baptized or married or buried their parents and right their faith was caught up in the persona of a minister as is often the case so yeah i just think it's one of these things that again the the kind of tabloid version is too simplistic Mm -hmm. and and one of the things i hope the book does is treat everyone's story respectfully and thoughtfully and that that includes the kind of serial killer at the heart of this
0: i love that i mean it sort of just says to me that we're acknowledging the humanity of people. And, you know, because we may not agree with people's decisions or actions doesn't make them any less human. Right. So I think that that is a huge undertaking to to sort of try to get at in a small town in Alabama in this time period. I mean, I don't I don't think that's Those are conversations that we're even having today in a lot of cities, especially some southern cities.
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting. You know, a lot of people ask me questions about why Harper Lee couldn't write this book and what was hard for her. And I think there's a really straightforward one that we don't sit with enough, which is she was a white writer of privilege. And she came to sit with some indigent black folks in Coosa County. And that's one of the poorest counties in Alabama. And I think she was a deeply... Uh, empathetic person, and she was good at listening and good at answering questions. But you know, she she had a real hurdle, and that that started with the kinds of lives she was trying to represent in the mm-hmm. book. And I think that some were more accessible to her than others. And you know, that is that is everything from you know the life of a sharecropper in 1925 to the life of a black serviceman in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Because even if you you know her brother served in the army, even if you had a brother in the army, his experience was different than the Reverend Maxwell. Wells. or then Robert Burns the Given vigilante exactly who served in in Vietnam so even those kind of small points of access are are fraught for her and and I think you know if we take the life of the reverend seriously we got to take the experience of the writer seriously and think about you know some of these door knocks she did were you know into black homes she would never have visited if she weren't reporting on them and the yeah. same thing was true for me to some extent I was going to ask some of these parts yeah. of Alabama where you know you most of us when we visit Alabama maybe we stop in Selma you mm-hmm. know maybe maybe Montgomery, maybe yeah. we go to Montgomery um and we look at the kind of heroes of the civil rights mm-hmm. movement but we don't think about the kind of everyday lives um, that participated or you know marched behind the reverend king or even who didn't march at all because yeah. they live in a town the movement passed by so i think that that was again kind of one of the rich experiences of the book for me and you know partly thinking about What made it hard for Harper Lee made it a little easier for me. And to your point, you know, I benefit from a lot of contemporary conversations um, and contemporary scholarship. There's just a lot more, you know, I think in terms of the facts, you were talking about gnarly facts. And I think we all learn this kind of triumphant story of the Civil Rights Act. And we learn, you know, with 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 real optimism about the thousands of black voters who are registered in places like Macon County. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't learn about the white backlash to that. And when I thought about, you know, this book tells a story of kind of a liberal politician in the Wallace years. And you think, Mm. well, why couldn't he do it? Macon County was in his district. And then you realize, you know, white voter participation surged to 97 percent as a backlash against black voter registration at that time. So it's again, I, I was shocked. You know, I started this book and I started it in 2015 and then was down in Alabama reporting during the um Doug Jones election for Senate. Oh, okay. And you you just have no idea how contemporary 60s and 70s Alabama felt to the conversations people were having then. My so gosh. it was very interesting and um I hope a part of the book that even if you're from Alabama or you're from the South you can revisit your own history in, a, in an interesting way.
0: I think so. I mean it's certainly what I've found myself able to do and it, it sounds to me like you're saying when Harper Lee was in the midst of gathering information, doing research and pinning down this story, it just wasn't time to
1: mm-hmm. tell the
0: story that she may have wanted to tell.
1: Yeah. And and certainly, you know, if folks have had a chance to read Ghosts at a Watchman. Mm-hmm. There's been a very interesting conversation even about the character of Atticus Finch. Mm-hmm. So, you know, rightfully a, a paragon of you know, lawyerly courage. And, you know, I can't tell you the number of people I meet who tell me their son is named Atticus or yeah. they became yeah. an attorney because of Atticus. And what Gosetta at a Watchman did was expose us to this kind of later in life version. Now it was a prequel, so she wrote it before, mm-hmm. even though it aged the characters up. But, mm-hmm. you know, he he's basically a Dixiecrat. And he's joined the White Citizens mm-hmm. Council. And yeah. I think that, you know, the kind of knee jerk reaction folks had of, oh, gosh, now he's racist, actually underestimates Harper Lee's kind of skill as a writer and sophisticated way of looking at political change. Because, in fact, what she was trying to do was give a more nuanced view of kind of everyday racism and the systemic yeah. ways in which we all come to hold our beliefs. So nobody feels like a racist for the most part. You know, I certainly
0: don't want to acknowledge that. but
1: Right. Right. And so looking at a character like Atticus, who is, you know, an honorable man, a quote, honorable Mm -hmm. man in his community, but who still wants to... You know, control black opportunity, and mm-hmm. who maybe is okay feels with, entitled to do that. Feels entitled to do so. Doesn't even feel like it's violative right. to say, well, you know, our schools are going to be run a certain way, and you know, our churches are going to be run another. And I think it's so interesting. That's why. So there's, the, the the book I wrote is basically, you know, th- the lives of three characters, and one mm-hmm. is the reverend, and one is his lawyer, and one is Harper Lee. Mm-hmm. I think that's the reason it felt so critical to me that I include the life of Tom Radney. So mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. is this um, white liberal in mm-hmm. the in the in the wild us years in Alabama. And, you know, he didn't get integration right at the very first moment, Mm -hmm. but he got it right. And he got it right when the court mandated it. And, you know, it was was the end of his political career, the extent to which he got it right and the extent to which, you know, he was willing to represent black clients. And, you know, Tom, Tom lived a very long life, lived long enough to be writing, you know, pro-Obama letters to the editor of the local paper. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of ways these characters kind of contrast each other. Mm -hmm. And Tom's clear-eyed politics is is one way that, you know, he kind of challenges Harper Lee. Mm. And it's interesting to think about the conversations they might have had. You know, here was a writer who was credited at being at the vanguard of civil rights, but who never marched, who never spoke publicly in favor Mm -hmm. of the movement, Mm -hmm. and and whose views, it seems, were actually a little more complicated. And so I think that, you know, it's a nice conversation between these characters, not that anybody is a saint. Not that anybody yeah. is, you know, an outright villain, but they critique and challenge one another in very interesting ways. Um, and and that's why, you know, Tom's political career, you know, he like goes to the 68 Democratic Convention. He mm-hmm. tries to nominate Teddy Kennedy. Like, this guy is a liberal. <laughs> <He> was, <yeah. laughs> um, and Wrote a book <laughs> on it, apparently. Totally. And, you know, I just feel like he was a liberal in kind of grandstanding ways, but a liberal mm. in personal ways that, you know, I can't think of a kind of more interesting story than a man who when the schools integrated in Tallapoosa County and mm-hmm. they were they were late to do so a lot of people kept their kids home that day. And in fact, the s- superintendent of the schools didn't go to school that day. But Tom told his wow. daughter, you know, there are going to be some black kids at your school today and they're going to be scared. And you let them know you're a friend to them. And that's a part of wow. the book. Like, you know, again, we talk yeah, about. That's remarkable. We talk about huge social changes and the differences people can make, you know, in the legislature mm-hmm. or in it's the very church. human moments. Exactly. It's very like, small. You know, exactly. And and you, you, you set that. Moment against some of the others in the book, and you know, I hope it's moving for people to just revisit that history. And the same way you think about, well, how would I have decided if I were on a jury with the Reverend Maxwell? Sit and think, well, what would I have told my kids? Would I have mm-hmm. even sent them to school that day? Or, or from the perspective of you know, readers of color, you know, do I recognize the the Tom Radneys in my town? Are there any? You yeah, know? and and what do and they the look like? Today? to the, you know right.
0: different. Right. Tom Ratney's, if we're talking about like white liberalism and there are layers. Uh, to and totally. that, that manifests in so many different ways. But I think, you know, we tend to clump people up and
1: sure. yeah, categorize
0: yeah. in ways that, you know, give us ease, but they don't really represent truly what individuals are capable of.
1: Right. And the kind of code switching that goes on between oh, those fears. And, yeah. you know, that's what I loved yes. about Tom. It's so clear, for instance, you know, here's a man who never flew a Confederate flag. Never. Mm-hmm. Not even in his childhood. But you go and you look at his speeches and, you know, he could talk that way in certain towns. And, you know, he and would had say to. and had to in, right or and, be run out or, you know. right or just didn't stand a chance of getting in the legislature. So, again, exactly. I, you got no saints in this book, but you've got people who are leading pragmatic lives and making their way through the world. And, wow, you know, Casey. to some extent, like forming new politics. Right. Like, to your point, there are gradations and we hold different beliefs and our beliefs evolve. And mm-hmm. so I think one one thing that's nice is because we get to follow. You know, these people intersect the reverend, the lawyer and the writer at one specific moment, Mm -hmm. but you get to see a little bit of where they came from and where they were going and they change. And, And that's true probably the most of Harper Lee, who I think some of us feel like, you know, that book came out in 1960, but Mockingbird was set in the 30s. Mm-hmm. So she's this anachronistic writer where we feel like maybe she died when the book, you know, she yeah. died before the book was even out or something, yeah. but she lives until 2016. 16, yeah, You know, she lives through the Obama and years and it's just an incredible amount of American witnesses. history right that she witnesses. And some, some of her letters let us see kind of what she thought about different periods of American history, but um, it's another way in which, you know, she just lives A long time, and and I hope that for readers who, even readers who feel like they know or they learn something because of this kind of private life she lived after *Mockingbird*.
0: So, in reading *Furious Hours*, everyone, there there is this opportunity to really look in a mirror, right? Really do some deep self reflection and evaluation. And you know, Casey's talking about it now, and I think I'm interested in how you started to kind of draw out your own uh, or these own, these indictments of self as you were doing your research, as you were traveling specifically in Alabama. Sure. How, how did you start to kind of rethink who you were or how you thought or how you believed or it, did that happen at all?
1: Sure. Well, I guess I should say, I mean, right off the bat, you talk about, you know, we, we like to put people into categories. Mm-hmm. And I came down to Alabama and I thought I had my categories for people. Yeah. And um, which is what we say about sure. Yankees.
0: No, I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> <laughs> probably. Yeah. I mean, I, it's what we say about our neighbors, right? You know, Very I say true. that about my neighbors up in Maryland, and I'm sure down here, people from different political parties feel like mm-hmm. they know everything about someone else yeah. as soon as they know which you know ballot they check. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I found myself tremendously humbled by that. Meaning, mm-hmm. people who humbled. I expected to think one way, thought a different way or to have interacted with Harper Lee a certain way, did a different way or who would love Mockingbird or hate it or have never read it or, you know, have just despised their liberal neighbor, Tom Radney or, um, you know, that kind of thing. People just surprise you. And I don't mean to suggest that it's all a pleasant surprise because there are certainly people who will let you in and pour you some tea and get to talking Mm -hmm. and and then they tell you how they really feel about you when Mm -hmm. you say where you're from or what your private life is like or how much you have in common with somebody else's politics. So it's not always a pleasant surprise. but
0: Yeah, there's danger. yeah, of, but they but well. they
1: surprise you, and you know I think there's a richness to how people form their political beliefs and their religious beliefs. I mean, again, I'm interested yeah. in religion. I was so shocked. Um, one of my favorite sources for the book is a woman who found a letter from Harper Lee in an Encyclopedia Britannica that she bought at a thrift store in town. And Just
0: like as a bookmark, the letter it was, was in there? by
1: Harper's Ferry. <laughs> <laughs> so that's its own incredible story. But that's what I'll tell you is, pretty she remarkable. and her family are Mormon. Ah. And I went to Mormon worship with them. And Mm -hmm. to the point that the South will surprise you, I would never have thought I would be going to Mormon worship in Alexander City, Alabama, but there's a Mormon stake. And, you know, there's a source who's interested in genealogy and interested in history. And, you know, like any other aspect of her community's history, she had looked into Harper Lee's time in town Mm -hmm. and she was very helpful and gracious. And, you know, you could do that, you know, you go to the Episcopal Church or you go to the Methodist Church or you go to a different Methodist Church. Right. you know, people's beliefs are more complicated than you think. And, you know, again, I studied religion mm-hmm. for a while and I grew up in the Lutheran church and um, Luther had this kind of perceptive insight yeah. into humanity. And for sure. forgive me for a minute for using the Latin. I promise I'll translate it. But Luther said that, you know, everybody was simul justus et peccator, mm. simultaneously saint and sinner. Picator. And, yeah. you know, I just think that those proportions change Simultaneously and, you know, saints, somebody seems yeah. especially saintly yeah. one day or sinner like the next. But um, that is what I learned when I was coming through, you know, confirmation and reading the Lutheran catechism. And it's served me well as a reporter, because if you if you let people, they'll show you the full range of who they are and how they think. And again, I just hope that I hope that the experience of the book is really you know, bringing three lives into conversation with one another and and not judging any one more harshly than the other, but, but yeah. looking carefully and critically at all of them.
0: If we do that. I mean, that's really a manual for how we could be looking at, you know, current state of politics and folks who are sort of making their legacy in our contemporary time, not giving anyone the benefit of being completely saintly or completely righteous or completely, you know, on the up and up that we've all got these sort of facets, if you will, that. Right. Or uh, again,
1: you know, our politics are a whole bushel of issues. And I think that, you know, one of Tom Radney's most radical positions, he he married a school teacher Mm -hmm. and he was pro-public education. And, you know, you would have thought he was proposing like, you know, <laughs> I, I, I can't even begin to like, you know, building a colony on Mars, funding the right, public something schools properly. Completely obscure. And that's an example of nowadays, you know, I think if we can get past a political label, we would all agree we want well-funded oh public schools. Everyone wants and their actually, children well-educated. Exactly. Everyone wants to be
0: able to feed their families. Everyone right. wants to and be able so to And so
1: your knee-jerk reaction survive. to I don't want taxes is actually tempered by, why well, don't mind paying a little more to make sure my kids have A good school, good textbooks, well-educated teacher. And so there's one where I hope, you know, no matter which, come in thinking about, you know, a lily-bellied liberal like Tom (laughs) Radney, you take a moment and think, well, what was he he actually after? He was after equality. Mm -hmm. He was after opportunity. He was after making sure that Alabama was not the last in the nation, which I'm sure people in Mississippi wrestle with that kind of talk and expectation. And, you know, so again whatever you think about who he was or who a man like that is or who a, you know, political talking head like that believes, just sit with a man who was really trying to do right by his community. Mm. Um, And that was, again, just the kind of patience I feel like this book taught me not to assume I know what other people want or what they're motivated by. Um, and, And I hope that, again, it's something that translates in the book.
0: My gosh, within these, you know... Within the the ends of this this book, there's so much opportunity to really be better humans.
1: Sure. Well, to, I think that's why we study history, right? Yeah. You know, th- this is a book well, that nothing so. else is right. Yeah. But I know we don't always. You know, again, yeah. one of the one of the things that surprised me was um, I didn't know much about Alabama history. Mm-hmm. I think you know I studied the civil rights movement in in high school and sure. college, but I didn't know much about the Creek Wars. Yeah. And you talk about not learning from your history, you know, that was a period of violence and exploitation and relocation Mm -hmm. and... Um you know, some would go so far as to say genocide and a deep disenfranchisement, right? Yeah. Dis- sure. You yeah. know, at the kind of logistical yeah. level, ongoing uh-huh. disenfranchisement. And that was very interesting to think about the kind of archaeology of violence and exploitation. And you get down to that that part of it. And that's why, again, I felt like, you know, you couldn't stay at the surface of, well, this is a story about murder because actually it's a story about violence. And when you think of it yeah. that way. That is, And violence manifests
0: in so many different ways. I mean, there's epistemic violence, which I think arguably is more damaging as we go generation to to generation.
1: Sure. And environmental violence. You know, this book starts out with a Mm -hmm. story of, you know, these hydroelectric power plants, which for the most part brought opportunity. And I don't I don't want to say they didn't. You know, I think the story of the TVA is one of the great triumphs of. Federal government, but yeah. you know the Tallapoosa River was dammed and it remade the watershed and Lake Martin is beautiful. I mm-hmm. spent a lot of time there, but that is another kind of violence. And mm-hmm. thinking about the Mississippi did it and has how. Ex-
0: had experienced it right. the same. Right, time. I just
1: drove up from New Orleans. You want to talk about you know the violence we're doing, to well, the landscape yeah. and the the waterways, and again, you know, it's we've, we've and how that we've, bleeds over into the people, right. Especially those who don't and have... And who benefits and who doesn't. You know, again, yeah. that power exactly. plant, that dam on the Tallapoosa River, on the one hand, brought electricity, but some people made money off of it and some oh, people gosh, didn't. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah. And some people got to and turn on their labor, lights. Yeah. Right. yeah, who built it. You mm-hmm. know, that was a segregated work camp. Mm-hmm. And that's why, again, it's like, on the one hand, it's just a cinematic moment where they, you know, put up the dam and the river is dammed and then they start yeah. flooding the land and it's gorgeous and beautiful and seductive. But, right, hopefully... You sit and you think about, OK, well, who built the dam? Yeah. And, and whose who had, farms and houses were lost when Lake Martin exactly. flooded? Exactly. Who and, could
0: move above right. water level? Who could move to town yeah. and what
1: jobs could they get when they got there? So, yeah, I feel like, you know, it's it's bad news if you're in this book for the murdering voodoo mm-hmm. preacher. But good news, if you like <laughs> the, to see the alleged history, murdering
0: voodoo preacher, yeah. which I mean, if you yeah. had named it that. I don't know. I don't, Different audience, I know so I had hope. Had right, <laughs> I
1: hope that you know people like to sit with their history yeah. and you know their their We're economics.
0: Murdering voodoo preacher, by the way, alleged. I like that you threw
1: in the alleged, <laughs> yeah. which again, poor Harper Lee was you know skulking around town in the nineteen seventies, and she was at one point apparently worried about an accomplice, and then she was worried about getting oh, sued, gosh. and so again, you know, interestingly the Reverend was never convicted of any crime, right? He was he was tried for murder once, mm-hmm. and they were going to try him again, but he was but acquitted. And, you know, prevailed in over a dozen civil cases. So a lot of juries agreed that he hadn't done anything and agreed that he deserved the life insurance he had. So even there, it's 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 a more complicated case than the newspapers at the time would have you believe.
0: It's beautifully complicated, which, you know, so is Alabama. And And in similar ways, Mississippi is as well. So I want, this is your official invitation to be here in Mississippi.
1: More often. Oh gosh, well I'd love to come back. Yeah, yeah, no. we're 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 talking about the kind of troubled waters, but I'm so excited to go to the Eudora Welty House, and you know, I've read so much about Richard Wright's time here. The garden's gonna
0: be beautiful today. Yeah, but
1: you guys got your own literary legacy to tend to and draw on and build on. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Which I think is made more
0: rich because we're surrounded by also by folks who thought deeply about life and humanity and experience and identity. Sure, which you have more than
1: done. In Furious Hours tried to yeah. we'll see I think so. <laughs> hopefully folks I mean, will if, read it and give it a shot and then you know <laughs> I always welcome matters. feedback so yeah. yeah but no it's an honor to get to talk to you about it and, and I'm so grateful already for the folks who've just spent time thinking about this book and yeah. the people in it
0: well, as a lifelong uh, Southerner, I want to thank you for how thoughtful mm. you were in handling the stories of these people's lives. Oftentimes, you know, outsiders, so to speak, can come in and, like you said, project their own True. expectations onto, you know, the lived experience of people. And so I think what you've done here with Furious Hours is really equitable and um, truly beautiful.
1: Gosh, well, thanks so it, much. It's beautiful work. So,
0: yeah. Casey, this has been a thrill. Totally. Thanks so Check much for having me. Check out Furious Hours, and we hope to invite Casey back to our state. And maybe there's a voodoo, an alleged voodoo preacher here, <laughs> or some other. <laughs> I
1: take stories of all kinds, so people should pass along stories, not I mean, just, just the so not just
0: the true crime ones. So. You are you're a consummate so- storyteller, so thank you for telling this story. Thanks so much. We want to thank Casey Sepp for joining us today. Be sure to visit your local bookstore to purchase her work and keep up with her online. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party.